It's time for the November 24, 2023 edition of Weekly Signals Weekly Review, a personal recollection of the last 168 hours of history broadcasting on National Flossing Day from the University of California at Irvine on KUCI 88.9 FM. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And... As always, Uh-oh. a man who takes his flossing seriously, <laughs> Mahler, the fake news dog. <laughs> Hello, Mahler. Look at those pearly whites. Check that out. Wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. Today we'll be talking about death metal orcas, mm. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, AI-controlled killer drones, onanism, and much more. But first, dogs in the news. From Yahoo News. Los Angeles County public health officials are investigating a mysterious respiratory illness affecting a rising number of dogs. Its origin, transmission, and treatment are unknown. The disease has struck the dog population in several states, including Colorado, Oregon, and New Hampshire, Mm -hmm. and it has been fatal in some instances. At least 10 cases have been reported in the L.A. County Department of Public Health since last week. There's no specific diagnosis for the disease. Instead, veterans make the determination when evaluating a dog who is suffering respiratory symptoms but tests negative on a panel of common diseases with similar symptoms like kennel cough. So it's kind of an elimination thing. It's not this, it's not that, it's not the other. Mm -hmm. It must be atypical canine infectious respiratory disease. That's what they're calling it. The illness causes symptoms like coughing, sneezing, nasal discharge, and lethargy. Health officials warn the public to monitor their pets for these symptoms and, if they display them, to take them to the veterinarian to be evaluated. That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, because we love our doggies. We love our doggies. Mm. Although I do know that some of them are faking it. Yeah, you think? Yeah, I do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, they heard about it and they said, you know, (laughs) I don't think more cookies. Did you have some coffee this morning, Mike? No, I had tea. I had green tea this green morning. Green tea. Uh, you're a health nut. Well, I'm a nut. I don't know about the other part. But yeah, yeah, I like... Well, I, you, are, you complain about people who aren't eating too much sugar and stuff like that. You kind yeah. of scoff at people who put down yeah. excesses yes, and I things do. that aren't good for them, except for you. Except you for eat a lot of salt. You never say, oh... No, I, I always say, I'm a terrible person. Shame on you. Uh-huh. From Cosmos Magazine. Scientists have turned old coffee grounds into something that could prevent Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and other neurodegenerative diseases. Nice. Carbon quantum dots made from caffeine acid in used coffee grounds mm-hmm. have shown promise in lab-based tests to protect brain cells from substances that cause these diseases. While still in the early stages, the research could herald an environmentally friendly way to smack down neurodegenerative diseases that have been caused by environmental factors like age or exposure to toxins. Yeah. No current treatments do the neurodegenerative disease smackdown. They only help manage the symptoms. Mm-hmm. The aim is to find a cure by addressing the atomic and molecular underpinnings that drive these conditions. Quantum dots, a concept which won this year's Nobel Prize in Chemistry, are crystals the size of nanometers, the uh, same scale as molecules. Mm. So you get the uh, caffeic acid down to a molecular level. Nice. 
Uh, it's an antioxidant, yeah. which neutralizes free radicals. It is also capable of getting from our bloodstream into our brains. That would be crossing the blood-brain barrier. So the researchers thought it could be an effective medication and tested their quantum dots on cell lines that had had Parkinson's disease induced by paraquat. The caffeic acid both removed free radicals and prevented amyloid proteins building up. Good deal. Yeah. They are now seeking funding to see if they can take the substance to preclinical trials, the first step on the long road toward medication. Well, that's promising. Yeah. Yeah. And if you hear me rummaging through your trash can one night, you'll... you'll For coffee grounds. You'll know why, yeah. I just drink coffee. Yeah. All this, uh, yeah, yeah. You don't you need know, all, all the these other quantum stuff. dots. Yeah, Who sure. needs that when yeah. you can just guzzle like a quart of coffee? When you got day. a head full of bees in your, yeah, yeah. yeah there you go. I got bees in my brain. <laughs> did you listen to any death metal this morning, Mike? I did not. Why? Oh, I just, <laughs> you know, I was just kind of a. You got to start your day with a little death metal. <laughs> is what I always say. Well, you know, a better person to ask that would be the station manager. He likes death metal. He, he likes a, a, metal. Yeah. I'm wondering if he's crossed over to the dark side, but I think... I think he, he ventures into he that might. He might. He dabbles in death metal, I believe. <laughs> dabbles in death. Yeah. From business inside, der. I better read that properly, otherwise business inside, der, might get upset. Uh-huh. From business insider. After a series of incidents this year where a population of orca whales near the Iberian Peninsula began attacking and sinking sailboats. You remember that? Yeah. They're going crazy over they there are, in the yeah. Iberian Peninsula. That's over by the, the, uh, the Rock of Gibraltar where mm-hmm. they sell insurance. Mm-hmm. Some sailors in the region there in the Iberian Peninsula are turning to death metal music blasting on underwater loudspeakers to deter the orcas from ramming into their boats. Wow. But the strategy may backfire playing oh. this death metal music to the orcas. Mm-hmm. Andrew Trites, director of the Marine Mammal Research Unit at the University of British Columbia, said that using hardcore tunage to drive away orcas from boats could help the orcas find the boats. Mm. You know, they're out there yeah. playing this yeah, yeah. saying, oh, the orcas are going away. Next thing you know, yeah. bam! Yeah. <laughs> well, and also, when you start seeing orcas showing up with tattoos and hats turned around and yeah. ripped T-shirts. Orcas can hear at higher frequencies than humans, meaning that trying to cover up the sounds of sailboats that the orcas have come to recognize is a futile exercise. In fact, the biggest problem with blasting noise underwater is that it ultimately is just adding more noise pollution to the ocean, which can have detrimental effects on other marine life. It's not just the orcas you're hurting there with your music. Noise pollution is already a major issue for marine animals that rely on sound to attract mates, communicate with friends and family, track food sources. I wonder how their Thanksgiving was. You know? Yeah. The, no, I, they're, they're communicating with friends and family down there under the ocean. I wonder, yeah. wonder how the 23rd went for them. It's, it's too depressing to even make fun of because orcas are... No, it isn't. There's it, well, nothing too depressing. No, orcas it's, and whales have been known to communicate with one another over literally a thousand miles from each other. Uh-huh. And now all of that is beginning to diminish. But they have a higher frequency of hearing, so it's futile. It's yeah. a futile exercise. What okay. these people are generally doing, the only thing you can really do to harm the orchestra is to deafen them. 
So they uh, communicate with friends and family. That's what got me off track there. I'm yeah. thinking of them sitting around yeah. after a turkey dinner talking about stuff. Yeah. They track food sources uh, using their ears, avoid predators, and navigate the ocean. And when all that noise pollution is going on, it makes those things difficult. If you enjoy orca-friendly death metal, may I recommend a donation to KUCI because you're a goddess through and through, and that's why we adore you. Just go to KUCI.org. Your generous donation is how we stay on air. Commercial-free, freeform, free speech radio, KUCI 88.9 FM. From the Orange County Register. Here we go to the uh, Bolsa Chica wetlands, Mike. Yeah, yeah, not a lot, but I have been been there on their little walking tour along there. Yeah, and yeah. that was a deal when they saved all that. It, what really was, yeah. yeah they've done yeah. a pretty good job. Yeah. Now, after years of disputes, the 6.2-acre Bolsa Chica Mesa is back under indigenous stewardship, wow. marking a historic moment as the first ever land returned to tribal communities in Orange County. Tribal community leaders announced the return of Boca Chica Mesa following the land transfer to the Asham Tongva Land Conservancy, formed three years ago with the intention of taking the land back to use as a historical site for ceremonies and education. The land above the Bolsa Chica wetlands was once slated for development until ancient artifacts were unearthed. The site is believed to have been the home some 9,500 years ago of the Ashamintangva tribes. The Bolsa Chica Mesa is just above the 1,000-acre Bolsa Chica wetlands, which at one time covered more than 4,000 acres of wetlands at the mouths of the San Gabriel and Santa Ana rivers. I remember this battle over the development. I forgot how many luxury homes were slated to go into there. Yeah, a whole bunch. A whole bunch. Yeah. And boy, did that turn into a Donnybrook in terms of the the people who eventually won out did a really remarkable job of sustained effort. It's one thing to run out there and demonstrate, but it's another thing to be able to sustain these campaigns and gather enough legal muscle behind it to keep it from happening. And they did a great job. Yeah. I think, too, they were inspired because so much of the coast has been yeah. torn up. Yeah. And they were just imagining another, uh, well, what they've done to parts of Huntington Beach. Yeah. Going all the way down the coast to Newport Beach. Yeah. And one other thing, unfortunately, in a sense, is this is wetlands. And, and based on a recent Supreme Court ruling oh, yeah. on the EPA, thank God somebody's in charge now of the wetlands who cares about the wetlands. Because this Supreme Court decision essentially stripped away the federal government's authority over many of the wetlands around the country. And thankfully someone here is going to be taking good care of it. From physicsnews.org, a newly updated government map is online helping gardeners to see what they can grow in their region oh, nice. now that climate change has changed their region's conditions. It's called the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Plant Hardiness Zone Map, and it's the national standard for gardeners and growers to figure out which plants are most likely to survive the coldest winters and warmest summers in their location. The 2023 map is about 2.5 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than the 2012 map across the contiguous United States. 
In some locations, people may find that they can grow new types of flowers, fruits, vegetables, and plants, while old varieties are dying out. In Florida, it's so much hotter, some tomatoes are rotting on the vine. For the time being, though, the Floridian zone can grow heirloom tomatoes that are more resilient to the fungi that spreads in rapidly warming humid climates. As we get warmer, that might also be impossible to grow there. Summer of 2023 was the hottest meteorological summer on record for the Northern Hemisphere, according to the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. Yeah. Yeah. That's right, Mommy. Well, here's something for you then, Mike. From the New York Times, an opinion piece entitled, I'm a climate scientist. I'm not screaming into the void anymore. By Kate Marvel. She was a lead author on the fifth National Climate Assessment just came out recently and didn't paint a pretty picture about things. She says that thanks to recent scientific advances, we can now link climate change to specific extreme weather disasters and have a better understanding of how the feedback loops in the climate system can make warming even worse. Now, this is according to the Fifth National Climate Assessment. We can also more confidently forecast catastrophic outcomes if global emissions continue on their current trajectory. But to Kate, the most surprising new finding in the Fifth National Climate Assessment is that there's been a genuine progress, too. In the last decade, the cost of wind energy has declined by 70%, and solar has declined 90%. Renewables now make up 80% of new electricity generation capacity. Our country's greenhouse gas emissions are falling, even as our GDP and population grow. In the report, Kate and other climate scientists were tasked with projecting what the U.S. would look like if the world warms by two degrees Celsius. And we're still moving in that direction. It isn't a pretty picture. More heat waves, more uncomfortable hot nights, more downpours, more droughts. But their findings also offered a glimmer of hope. If emissions fall dramatically, as the report suggested they could, we may never reach two degrees Celsius at all. Something has changed in the U.S. and not just the climate. State, local, and tribal governments all around the country have begun to take action. Congress passed federal climate legislation, some long regarded as impossible in 2022 as they turned in the first draft. And while the report stresses the urgency of limiting warming to prevent terrible risks, it has a new message too, we can do this. We now know how to make the dramatic emissions cuts we need to limit warming. And it's very possible to do this in a way that's sustainable, healthy, and fair. The conversation has moved on, and the role of scientists has changed. We're not just warning of danger anymore. We're showing the way to safety. This is Kate speaking. We have a once-in-a-human-history chance not only to prevent the worst effects, but also to make the world better right now. It would be a shame to squander this opportunity. So Kate just doesn't want to talk about the problems anymore. She wants to talk about the solutions. I'm a climate scientist. I'm not screaming into the void anymore by Kate Marvel. It's a worthwhile read. Where would I find it? It's in New York Times. New York Times. New York Times. Well, good. I mean, I'm glad to hear that. And let's not forget that the environment, so to speak, the environment in which this legislation passed was a democratically controlled House and Senate and President. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. Visit us on the web at KUCI.org. 
on Facebook at facebook.com slash KUCI 88.9, on our Tumblr blog at KUCIRadio.tumblr.com, and on Twitter and Instagram at KUCIFM. <laughs> That's right. Well, mm-hmm. FM. He mm. likes that, that uh, frequency <laughs> modulation going on. From Los Angeles Time, an opinion by Harry Littman. Oh, I like Harry Littman. You like Harry? I Good. do. Yeah. yeah. The latest opinion denying a challenge to Donald Trump's eligibility to run for president has occasioned a lot of teeth gnashing about how the court, in the words of Colorado's Secretary of State, gave Trump a get-out-of-free card for insurrection. In fact, the opinion by Colorado District Judge Sarah Wallace is a giant step toward disqualifying Trump from the ballot on constitutional grounds. Colorado challenge is one of several brought under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which disqualifies officials who have engaged in insurrection against the United States from holding federal office. The provision gives rise to the argument that Trump is not qualified to run for president because of his role in the events of January 6. Wallace's opinion concludes that the president is not technically an officer of the United States and is therefore not disqualified from the ballot. Trump hailed this as a gigantic court victory. In fact, the opinion goes nine-tenths of the way toward recognizing the challenger's claim and disqualifying Trump. Every other court that has taken up the 14th Amendment claim to date has shied away from adjudicating it on the merits, finding it was a political question or otherwise unsuited for determination by the courts. The Colorado judge, by contrast, worked methodically through the evidence to determine that Trump did engage in insurrection, which only a court trial can do. In the process, she rejected Trump's First Amendment defense, finding that his intentional incitement of the January 6 marauders overcame any free speech claim. The order that will be appealed to higher courts thus has nearly everything that would be needed to disqualify Trump from the ballot. From the Times of India, the prospect of AI-controlled killer drones is so worrying that there are proposals at the United Nations to impose legally binding rules on lethal autonomous weapons, that is, AI-controlled killer drones. However, the process seems to be going nowhere there. The United States, Russia, Australia, Israel, and others have all argued that no new international law is needed for now while China wants to define any legal limit so narrowly that it would have little practical effect. Frank Kendall, the U.S. Air Force Secretary, said AI-controlled drones will eventually need to have the power to take lethal action on their own while remaining under human oversight in how they are deployed. Thomas Hams, a retired Marine officer who is now a research fellow at the Pentagon's National Defense University, says it's a moral imperative that the United States and other democratic nations build and use autonomous weapons. He argued that failing to do so in a major conventional conflict will result in many deaths, both military and civilian, and potentially the loss of the conflict. Some arms control advocates and diplomats disagree, arguing that AI-controlled lethal weapons that do not have humans authorizing individual strikes will transform the nature of war fighting by eliminating the direct moral role that humans play in decisions about taking a life. 
Last week, the UN committee agreed at the urging of Russia and other major powers to give itself until the end of 2025 to keep studying the topic. But uh, Alexandra Kement, Australia's chief negotiator on the issue, said, if we wait too long, we are really going to regret it. Soon enough, it will be cheap, easily available, and it will be everywhere. And people are going to be asking, why didn't we act fast enough to try to put limits on it when we had a chance to? Yeah, I'm with him. At what point in human history, looking back on new weaponry and the implementation of it in warfare, that morality was the guiding principle in using weapons? We should at least have some rules on the board. They're going to be violated anyway, but at least there should be some sort of barrier in some organization that tries to prevent this moral issue from getting out of control. Yeah, I I guess if, and help me out here, the ban on the use of um, biological warfare has for the most part worked. And yeah, so no, but so is that, yeah. So is that a, uh, is that an encouraging thing in terms of AI and, and this kind of weaponry? Or is it an anomaly that biological, because the problem with biological warfare, it can come back and get you. Yeah. That's the problem. Now, here with AI, you could be much more focused and direct, and you know it's not going to come back on you. But biological, chemical weapons could come back to harm you. My fear is that it's just, they're going to go forward, and you're right. We'll be chasing our tail trying to catch up with, with AI. Well, and, and you don't, just to simplify it, you don't not have speed limits because someone's going to break the speed limit anyway. <laughs> right. You, you try to put some right. rules in place so people know yeah. what at least we agreed to at one yeah. time and they have something to reflect on yeah. as they're about to break the rule or not. Right. And eventually, we have shown over the last few decades that people do eventually be held to account, right? Going back to Nuremberg and moving forward with the World Court, we have things in place now to hold people accountable. If, they, if we can't prevent them from doing it, we can, we can at least hold them accountable at some point. We can pose the question, why did you violate that rule? Yeah. Whether, whether there's even a court or right. there's even punishment, right. at least it gets public opinion thinking a particular way or right. gives them a question to ask. From the Associated Press, a Russian court sentenced a pacifist artist to seven years in prison in a penal colony for leaving price tags with Mm. small anti-war messages in a supermarket. It's the latest example of the Kremlin's resolve to stamp out opposition to Russia's war in Ukraine. Putin's laws have effectively made it a crime to oppose the war there. The artist, Alexandra Skotchelenko, 33, was found guilty of spreading false information about the Russian army, a criminal offense introduced shortly after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year for placing the messages at her local supermarket in St. Petersburg. One of the price tags, which had been part of a wider online anti-war campaign by a rights group, read, 4,300 Russian soldiers died in the first days of the war. Why were television networks silent about it? That got her seven years in a pedo colony. The Russian army bombed an art school in Mirapol, where about 400 people were hiding from shelling. You know, these are pretty innocuous things. Other than saying what, as far as we know, is the truth, it's not something to go to a penal colony for seven years.
This is really the, the frightening thing to me. Uh, I can imagine this happening under Trump. Yes. I was just going to say, Putin, he has expressed his admiration for the strong leader that Putin is. Called him a genius. Called him a genius. Yes, absolutely. I think what we're seeing right now, right in front of our faces, out loud, the things that, obviously what Putin's done, and how Trump, I think, would have no guardrails. That's the, that's the cute way of putting it. He would have no problem imposing these kinds of punishments on yeah. people. You know, even the trial there, she was standing in a courtroom cell. Yeah. They had bars around yeah. this woman who, who was just putting, changing the little price stickers at grocery stores yeah. to have these slogans on it. And they were very small. They I were know. inconspicuous little factoids. <laughs> standing in the courtroom cell, Skotchalenko said that by prosecuting her, the state was drawing more attention to her anti-war message. Yeah. I hope that's true. From Scientific American, in the coming months, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration will be evaluating commercial proposals for decommissioning the International Space Station, that is safely dropping it into Earth's atmosphere to burn up. The decommissioning is scheduled for early next decade, but it is already proving a delicate matter for aerospace engineering and international diplomacy. Although it is also supported by Canada, Japan, and Europe, the International Space Station is chiefly a creation of the U.S. and Russia and is one of the very few areas of steadfast cooperation between yep. both nations across decades of rocky relations. There's been someone uh, in that station since it went up, I think you know, it was a long time ago. And they've done a lot yeah. of very valuable research on space travel and its impact on the human body. On balance, I think it's been, in terms of the space race and our, our reaching out to the stars, been a very, very good thing. If the station were abandoned in a graveyard orbit, which is just leaving it up there, yeah. its eventual disintegration would generate enormous amounts of debris that could damage other satellites. The International Space Station is larger than a football field and its orbit is over 90% of Earth's population. Deconstructing it is unfeasible because it wasn't designed for disassembly. Mm. An uncontrolled re-entry could significantly impact people on the ground, including fatalities, injuries, and significant property damage. The safest way to bring the station down to Earth is to dump it into the sparsely inhabited expanses of the Southern Pacific Ocean. It's tricky to do this, to drop it into the Pacific Ocean there, because the station's orbit sends it over more than 250 linear miles of the Earth's surface every minute. Yeah. With a ground track that is constantly changing as the world turns. Mm -hmm. So it's going back and forth and it's at a tremendous speed. An ideal process uh, would go something like this. After months of natural orbital decay that would slowly lower the station's altitude at around 250 miles above Earth, a custom-built rocket vehicle attached to the space station would begin a deorbit burn. In other words, it would speed it up, push it down about at around 120 miles, 25 miles in altitude. Mission controllers would adjust the station's trajectory, tweaking it, with the rockets burned to reshape the station's roughly circular orbit into an ellipse. Yeah, I got you. So you got a close point, yeah. a perigee, right. and a further point, with its closest earthward, earthward point being about 90 miles above the planet. From that 90-mile perigee, 
Mission Control would command the rocket to fire a final time, pushing the station even farther down to fall over the Pacific Ocean. Lots of math in this. Yeah. It will be a delicate procedure, and the whole world will be watching. That would be sometime in the next decade, but in the early part of the decade, we're going to drop this huge football field satellite down somewhere in the Pacific. Yeah. And hopefully it... Uh, lands where they want now, it. Now, Nathan and I are old enough to remember this in real time, but it reminds me of Skylab. Yeah. Remember, the old, this has happened a long time ago, and this was a satellite that was out there to take... But it wasn't a football field. Yeah, no, it was... Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there was like a worldwide concern that this thing was going to land on, on their, you know, your house or uh-huh. whatever. And it was a big deal. Well, you're right. This I was is a, out there with a, about the uh, garden hose on the roof, you know, just in case it landed <laughs> on my house, put out any, you know, little smoldering, yeah, ashes. It, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now, there were Skylab parties. People were out, you know, in their in their front yard with with binoculars <laughs> yeah, and there were them. my ties, and yeah, I don't think that would happen now. From Smithsonian Magazine. <laughs> American and Japanese scientists are preparing to launch the world's first wooden satellite next summer as an environmentally friendly and safer alternative to the aluminum ones currently circling the Earth. And we're talking about mainly all the uh, SpaceX, all the uh, uh, communication satellites. That's wild. Wood? Yeah. In 2020, a team of Japanese researchers tested the durability of three different types of wood in space, Ehrman's birch, Japanese cherry and magnolia bovate. I'm building my house out of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, despite the harsh... Well, you, if you built your house in space, it would be good. Despite the harsh conditions of space, the wood samples had no measurable changes in mass and showed no signs of decomposition or damage. Because there's no oxygen in space, it doesn't huh? burn, and there's no living creatures out there, so it doesn't rot. There's no fungus, there's no okay. you know, so oxygen. There's no, so, so there's no termites. Yeah. Based on their test, the team determined that a magnolia wood would make the best material for a satellite that could have several advantages over the traditional metal ones. Unlike metal, wood completely burns up when re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. Yeah. And it doesn't release harmful substances or debris in the process. As of September, about 11,000 metal satellites were orbiting our planet, and that number is only going to grow. Defunct satellites can pose a major risk to the ones that are still functioning or to spacecraft, and wood satellites may be an answer. From Los Angeles Times, a technical revolution is changing the game of bowling. We're going into different territory. We definitely are. From from, uh, wooden satellites to wooden pins. (laughs) Bowling alleys across the country are ditching traditional pin setters, the machines that sweep away and reset pins, in favor of contraptions that employ string. Think of the pins as marionettes with nylon cords attached to their heads. Yeah, yeah, okay. String pin setters mean big savings, maybe salvation for an industry losing customers to video games. Yeah. That's why the U.S. Bowling Congress recently certified them for tournaments and league play. But there's a delicate science at play here, if you're a bowler. Radius of gyration and coefficient of restitution and other obscure forces cause the new tethered pins to fly around differently than old freefall pins. The best researchers could come up with was a marionette pin configuration that resulted in 7.1 fewer strikes and about 10 pins fewer per game as compared to bowling with traditional pin setters. 
And the new marionette pins don't even make the same noise. Yeah. They don't make really much noise at all. If so you've ever bowled, you know the sound of yeah. pins. Well, yeah, if you've ever been in a bowling alley. In a bowling alley, yeah. yeah. In yeah. fact, it's, it's fun. I, yeah, I, I got to say, I enjoy I, it. Yeah, yeah, it's like hearing a drum roll and then the ball <laughs> charging down the lane. But with these marionettes, there's no cymbal crash at the end. Yeah. There's no roll bang. There's just a roll and... So is the knock that the pin setters take too long, or are they just too inefficient? Do they cost well, too much of, money? The, yeah. Well, they're... Uh, the machinery, right? I yeah, mean, they're machinery, it's electricity, and it's also, they have a mechanic full-time yeah. oh, working yeah. on these things. Yeah. Every bowling alley generally has a full-time mechanic yeah, I could see that's, that's trying to fix the pins. Yeah. And from cordcutter.com. Pluto TV and Local Now launched a 24-7 car chase channel showing all car chases all the time, including live feeds of real-time chases, plus a curated list of some of the best car chases from local news stations around the United States. According to an ad for the network, there are over 10,000 car chases every year in California alone. Now, I think these are pretty small car chases. I don't think... Yeah. Yeah. Of the 10,000, there might be maybe, what, three or 400 that yeah. are turned into the long. You're watching it on Any, live feed even, yeah. and the helicopters <laughs> and the lights and the cops. I, I think you're right. I think yeah. this is probably somebody went around the block. Yeah. And the cops, you know, the cops chased yeah, them down. Chase, <laughs> yeah. Well, they went for 500 feet. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not going to work. You know, it's, what am I thinking? Yeah. I'm pulling over. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, from Iowa City News. An Iowa man was arrested for onanism outside the come-and-go convenience store. You can subscribe to the Weekly Signals Weekly Review podcast at weeklysignals.com. Weeklysignals.com. Subscribe now.